welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Jaime, and good morning, listeners. How are we doing this morning? Yeah, a bit chilly, but otherwise very well, thanks. I am quite excited and a bit anxious this morning uh, about our guest because um, I think it would be fair to say that this man changed my life. So um, this morning we're going to be talking to Tom Brunzel, who is the Director of Education with Berry Street. And we're going to have a conversation about Tom's life in education. Um, but we are also going to listen to a lot of fun music. Um, and to give you a taste, uh, here's the first selection by Tom. Sorry about that. When a stroke attacks your brain, up to 1.9 million brain cells die every minute. Time is critical in treating stroke. Paramedics, nurses and doctors can only respond if you recognise the fast signs of stroke. F. Face. Check their face. Has their mouth drooped? A. Arms. Can they lift both arms? S. Speech. Is their speech slurred or confused? T. Time. Don't wait. Call triple zero now. Join the fast response team just by recognising the signs of stroke. Visit strokefoundation.org.au now. A very important message there. Luckily, we don't have to call triple zero, but um, it was a very energetic start of our show. Uh, you're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. And the track we just heard was Freedom by George Michael. Maybe we can get our guest, Tom Branzell, who to explain the reason for this choice. Um... I think uh, that song in the late 80s, early 90s just represented a sort of new way of writing pop music. And ultimately, I just think it has a great beat and a great message. And I play it as much as I can when I do trainings and things for people. It's a great way to start the morning. I'm all revved up now. Myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> all right. So, Tom, maybe we, we may start from the beginning, if that's okay with you. Yeah. So, the first question that we'll throw at you is tell us a little bit about your... Your childhood and where you grew up. Thanks, Jaime. It's a pretty dramatic story. I was born in the outskirts of Saigon in 1974. So that was in the final months of the Vietnam-American War. And I was flown by the American military on a plane. And as the story goes, there were no seats in the plane because they were rushing the babies out so quickly. So I was in a box and uh, the, the nurses and soldiers would pick up the babies in the middle of the plane to rock them <laughs> while the planes were in the air. Um, but I, was, I eventually landed in Los Angeles where I was adopted in Operation Baby Lift. And so if you guessed my accent correctly, you would have guessed Los Angelino. And that's where I spent the first 18 years of my life. Wow. Okay, so don't stop at the first 18 years. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, you know, even a little <laughs> bit about your childhood, you know? Just yeah, it was a very blessed childhood. I was raised in a quite affluent area of Pasadena and uh, firmly ensconced in um, a church community, which I look back and think uh, were the grounding of a pretty strong value set and an attitude towards social justice, which I look, uh, I look for, uh, fondly on. And um, I think because I had, as even as a kid, this identity of 
sort of being insider, outsider, part of the community, not part of the community. I was the only Asian person that I knew mm. for most of my life. Um, I think that gave me a unique perspective of of understanding the way certain structures worked and also being sort of critical of them at the same time. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was a pretty high-flying student, and I loved learning. That was very much a refuge for me. Did you have a chance to discuss your 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 birth and what happened and, and were your parents really open to you about that? Uh, great question. I, I would, it's complex. I would say that I was told from a very early age that our family was a gift and that the way our family was created was a gift. So I felt very um, included. Um, but due to the times and I would say the political grounding of my own parents, um, I didn't know a lot about Vietnam and I wasn't introduced to very much about where I came from um, until I became uh, an adult much, much later when I sought it out. Uh, but I was raised my whole life thinking I probably would not go back to Vietnam and being an American citizen. By the way, I want credit. I'm a, I'm a dual citizen. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and we can talk about that later. Uh, I, I, I want to lot of credit for being an Australian but uh, being an American at the time you know I mean American America my America was quite insular is quite insular and uh, nobody I knew would ever go to Asia or cross the Pacific Ocean so it, 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 it felt like I was in America to stay you know, we could just feel a whole radio yeah, we show could. just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, we could. <laughs> so and I meant, I, and sometimes I do that in my talks and I'm not supposed to. <laughs> so, Tom, uh, tell us a, a little bit about, uh, you know, college. You went... Yeah. Um, I was a high-flying student. I went to Yale University in Connecticut, uh, which at the time was a bastion of liberal arts. And uh, I, I suppose that's a big grounding for myself. I mean, I, I just think everyone in the universe should have a strong knowledge of the arts. <laughs> and I think the arts will save us. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, uh, I, I was in Connecticut for four years and uh, loved my studies and studied a lot of art and art theory and social justice and feminism and queer theory and all sorts of interesting things like that. And thought I was making myself into an interesting person and that would qualify me for life. And, you know, 30 years later, I think it does. But that's another show too. Uh, but, uh, and then I shot down to New York City where I started my career. So this is what I was going to ask you. So yeah. did you go into teaching straight away? No, 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 no. I was, uh, I lived my life thinking that I was going to be a clothing or fashion designer. Uh, and so I, I always thought I would go into fashion, which I did for the first, in my 20s. And so I spent time being a menswear designer for uh, a couple of American lines. And um, then realized that felt, started feeling pretty hollow. And I started looking around thinking, do I want to be obsessing over the color of this button in the millimeters of this collar point for the next 30 years? And the answer was clearly no. I guess that's where you got your very beautiful dressings. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I care, but I will take the question seriously. And I mean, I know we're making big jumps here, but I do care a lot about presentation and organization. And I do think that messages must be translated for now and for the future. And I do think there's something around the constant turning of fashion and presentation and design that can help us. 
Yeah. yeah. All right. So I want to hear about uh, your journey into education. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started as a Teach for America TFA core member in the Bronx. So TFA in America was a social service organization um, that you could sign up and go to communities where they just could not staff teachers. So um, I was sent to the Central Bronx. And uh, if you know New York City, and a lot of our listeners will, I'm sure, um, my school is across the street from Yankee Stadium in the South Bronx. And uh, there, I my first school, well, I will never forget, was a fifth floor old hospital like from the 1890s and it was falling apart and uh my kid there were no elevators so i spent the first two years of my life walking up five gigantic flights of stairs with 35 students behind me up and down up and down so um Tell us about your early experience teaching in those schools. Yeah, I was a terrible teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah. Just quickly, the, okay, the yeah. TFA program, do they yeah. give you any training They do. Teaching? I definitely know that I want to make sure that we give credit where credit is due. Um, TFA gives um, pre-service teaching, uh, you know, pre-service teaching um, courses and mentorship and all of that good stuff. But I think our educator friends listening out there will know no matter how much you get, you really don't quite understand what you're in for until you're in front of those children. And so, unfortunately, I didn't get enough training or support as much as I probably needed. And my first two years, I made every mistake in the book. And I am very public about this. I I didn't quite understand that I was... M meant to be modeling adulthood <laughs> and i wish someone had told me that and i do tell a lot of teachers that now like we're, we're modeling the people we want the young people to become and unfortunately i started mirroring the escalated and dysregulated responses of my students and i had a terrible theory at the time <coughs> that said that my students came from very angry households and they would come into my classroom and be angry with each other and I would have fights and physical altercations in front of me. I wasn't the one doing the physical altercation, <laughs> but I would witness it and it was really scary. And so my response as a natural human response was to escalate myself even further and try to prove to them that I could be more conscious than they, my students were, but I would match their anger, anger for anger. <laughs> and so if they, if they were, if they were um, hypervigilantly looking at each other, like who's going to be the boss here? Uh, I, my theory for the first two years was I'll be the biggest, loudest boss in the room, which worked for a moment. Uh, but I realized I was reenacting dominator values and thus begins a journey, I think, that we're probably mm -hmm. going to talk about. Today. Well, exactly. So we definitely want to talk about that journey because a few years after that, you were actually one of the people who founded a school with yes. completely different values. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So I would love to hear how we went from a, an yeah. angry teacher yeah. to, <laughs> to a, an enlightened one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. Um, I, I started realizing that I was mirroring the, mirroring the distress of the people in front of me. And I knew that there were only two choices for me to resign myself to working in this 
hyper-adrenalized way every day or get out of teaching in realizing I thought that's what teaching was. Like if you were going to work in systemically disadvantaged environments, then you needed to become that in some way um, to, to, to effectively reach the people that you were trying to help. And that was not helpful. So I, I love learning. And I came back to, I think, my center, my center character trait of uh, the love of learning and courageously trying to find new ways of doing things. And thus begins what I think is the sort of matured step of my career of looking for new ways to do things. You know, I was uh, doing a bit of thinking about today's interview and I was reading um, a, a book that you may know quite well and like, which is The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, I love that book, yes. <laughs> and um, I, I just came across the quote, you know, when children are oppositional, defensive, numbed out, or enraged, it's also important to recognize that such bad behavior may repeat action patterns that were established to survive serious threats, even if they are intensely up- upsetting or off-putting. Yeah, you've just given a really great example from uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who would talk about the effects of um, traumatic stress in the body. And what we now know is that, yes, that's very important to understand and acknowledge, but if you are a carer or a parent or a teacher or somebody who's helping somebody who's struggling, then the vicarious effects of that will also resonate in your body. And so... All of this information, which might be called trauma-affected information, is nonverbal. So it's, you know, I think it's so important for all of us to understand, yes, it's what we say matters, but who we are and the energetic quality of who we are is really what's being passed. Um, And, you know, I can't help but think when we talk about vicarious effects of trauma or the vicarious effects of working people with people with complex needs. There's another concept that I got to sneak in here, which is vicarious post-traumatic growth, which is we as workers and people supporting communities can also grow from witnessing the resilience and strength of the Mm -hmm. people we work with. So where did you get your introduction to these concepts back in the day? Because obviously... It was a, a while ago, and there were not people like Tom Brunsell doing training for other people. So where, how did you yeah. learn about some of this stuff? I started, um, yeah, the idea, I think, I mean, what you're talking about is this buzzword we have now, which is called trauma-informed practice in, in, in communities and in schools, which is very important. And it's our job to keep that a buzzword for a long time now. But that wasn't a thing. And it wasn't a thing then because we didn't have the research on it and nobody was really thinking about what could other people beyond, say, mental health professionals do to become trauma-informed to help um, systemic uh, in a systemic ways in communities. But uh, for me, the uh, it was the field of well-being. So back in 2000 and 2000, between 2000 and 2004, um, a group of scientists from the universities of Pennsylvania and Michigan start to study what's right with us. And it was a turn in the field of psychology because up until that point, there were many, many people looking at um, ill-being. And that's important. Like, uh, we need to understand how to help people heal uh, from from uh, life's adversities. But the study of well-being was a new study. Now, clearly... Um, scientists did not invent well-being, but the the 
uh, empirical study of it is something that only began about 20 years or so ago. So that I was in the right places at the right time because in New York at our schools, we started talking about that. And how could we integrate this new science of well-being into business as usual at schools? Um, so, yeah, that was the beginning. Well, of so we're going to learn about all of that in just a few minutes. But before that, we're going to give our listeners a bit of a break and get them to listen to Tom's second selection. Let's listen to this. Oh, as usual, we have been caught by surprise by the end of the music. So that was New New Order, and the song is called True Faith. And maybe, Tom, you can just quickly explain the choice. Uh, yeah, growing up in Southern California, <laughs> um, I was obsessed with British post-punk music and have spent a lot of hours in my bedroom as a child dancing to that song. So <laughs> when asked to put forward music, I needed to bring that with me today. Beautiful. <laughs> Okay, so w right before the music break, uh, we sort of left you um, starting a journey um, and starting to discover the science of well-being. And, you know, I, I want to talk about the, the infinity, is it Infinity KIPP school? Is that yeah, it's a KIPP Infinity School. K-I-P-P. -P. It's an acronym that stood, stands for Knowledge is Power Program. And it's a network of national charter schools in America, and um, each KIPP school is different depending on the community and the people who start the school. And so after teaching in government schools in the Bronx, I was asked to be part of a co-founding team. Uh, and we started a new school at the corner of 133rd and Broadway. And due to our uh, hard work and the incredible effort put forward by our students, uh, we became a uh, top performing New York City public school for student achievement for a couple years in there. Uh, and uh, so that came to a lot of people's attention. And um, the good folks from Barry Street, Victoria, one day found out about it. So, <laughs> so, you know, before you said yeah. in a bit of a joking way, because I can't really believe that it was true that you were a terrible teacher when you started. Yeah. Um, so uh, what changed in the process? Okay, I was facetious. I was, I would say I was in a lot of ways a great teacher in that I was well organized. I had high expectations for my kids. I thought a lot about differentiating instruction and really creating relationships but I say I was a terrible teacher because my dark side was that I did a lot of yelling and demanding and I thought in my haughty, haughty self-righteous way that that was high expectations for kids and I wish somebody had told me what uh, Professor John Hattie says now which is high expectations are when we help students set high expectations for themselves and that would have informed me uh you know 20 years ago in a mu much more nuanced way i think you're listening to mad village on 98.9 northwest fm it is now uh just after 9 30 and our guest this morning is tom branzell who's the director of education at berry street and we're just at the point where tom has experienced i guess significant success uh, in a in a school that he co-founded in the u.s and he's been asked by berry street to come over and work for us. 
Yeah. So for them, I mean. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, can I just say a word about Berry Street? Of course. And who we are. So we are uh, Berry Street. We are one of Victoria's oldest and largest child welfare organizations. We're 140 years old, and um, we were started in the days of the gold rush um, by a group of very strong and independent women who wanted to create homes for the babies that were left behind in the gold rush. And these were babies that other organizations and faith-based organizations did not want to take care of. So I always want to pay real tribute to the founders of our important organization. Uh, but now we, uh, we help children across the state, and we are a large provider of outer home care and foster care and therapeutic services. And uh, my, my Jaime keeps calling me the director of education. That's a new role, and I'll take that role in mid-October. And uh, I will help run, um, we have a multi-campus school and a number of education services and uh, a training group called the Berry Street Education Model. So what was the job that you were originally yeah, offered? that job. <laughs> that job was supposed to last one year, and then I was going to get out of here and go back to the <laughs> States to do something else. Um, the initial job was a, a real blue-sky job. It was, could you come to Victoria? This was eight years ago, um, I was asked. Um, could you come to Victoria and help us with our education programs? And that was pretty much the job description, which says a lot about Barry Street's um, willingness to, um, to go after you know, really uh, unknown and innovative things. But in that year, I loved what I was doing and I fell in love with the people at Berry Street and realized that I think particularly in Victoria, I'll say this, um, there's something important about the way Victorian educators are thinking that um, although they do we don't have all the answers. We have a real appetite for learning and that is not common across our world. And so I realized that Victoria was really fertile for these new budding ideas around trauma-informed practice and well-being-informed practice. And how could we integrate these two things in a school culture? So I, I want to go back to my comment when I first introduced you and I said, you changed my life, um, and you know what? I because I and, and I can't remember this moment in time. Mm -hmm. The the day that my life changed was when I actually read your paper. Uh, that I mean, I I know you've written more than one, but you know w which one I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that paper? And also, again, what you did as well when you came here, which is... Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so the paper that Jaime is talking about is something that, a very important paper to me, that I co-authored with Professor Lee Waters of the Center of Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne. And it was at the beginning of my own research journey where when I wanted to research trauma-informed practice models, um, anyone who knows Lee Waters, I mean, she is a worldwide leader in positive psychology, she said to me, well, if you're going to do this, you need to look at every trauma-informed practice model around the world, compare and contrast, publish it, and prove that you're about to do something different. <laughs> so that kind of rigor has led our own research and practice journey. And um, what we did is realize that um, looking at this budding science around what trauma-informed practice meant for classrooms and teachers was a real dual focus. And that was something that arose through this publication. Um, the idea that st students struggling with um, what we might call trauma, but sometimes I say chronic stress or community disadvantage, are often struggling with 
regulating themselves and we might call that self-regulatory capacities but i also sometimes call that mind-body connection that these are kiddos who have um, a heightened sense of protectionism and uh, a sense of uh, scanning the environment and trying to keep themselves going and uh, for survival that creates a new baseline of uh, i might say baseline of heart rate but really baseline of living that if you if you walk around thinking that everyone around you might be looking for something from you or taking advantage of you that takes a lot of your energy and a lot of energy away from learning the the second capacity that arose in our literature is the is that relational capacity or relationships the ability to sustain healthy relationships is often compromised by living in um, systemic disadvantage um Tom, I just wanted to bring up another quote by uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, the speculation that strong emotions can block pain was the result of the release of morphine-like substances manufactured in the brain. This suggested that for many traumatized people, re-exposure re to stress might, provi might provide a similar relief from anxiety. So, some young people that we work with uh, it almost looks it looks like they enjoy causing a bit of trouble. Oh, I like that 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 prompt time. Eh? It looks like they enjoy it. I would say it. We we might suggest or theorize they need it. Mm. They they must have. You know, people who are used to feeling heightened and, and, and that buzz, you know, some of us would call that stress, some of us would call that being alive, but if we don't feel that buzz, we don't feel like ourselves. And perhaps the opposite of that buzz is the mindful feeling of being in the present moment, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the Zen moment. And I think in our spaces, and I know a lot of different professions might be listening to this, I would think that together we're trying to build a new feeling in our young people that says, I can exist and be on this planet and be in this present moment and acknowledge who I am without generating this chaos and this buzz. But we have to meet people where they're at. And uh, I think the first step is to help um, professionals know what's happening in the bodies of our young people so we can understand. And as I've perhaps one of the themes of this morning has been to be aware of what might be happening for you as a professional when you are in front of somebody who is escalating themselves. Um, I was wondering if you would care to tell us a little bit about what happens to the brains and bodies of people who um, go through ongoing complex trauma. Sure. That's a big question, yeah. Jaime. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll say this in this, knowing that I have a very, very small amount of time. Um, I guess I'll put it in these terms. I, I myself am a very blessed person. I'm not a traumatized person, so I'll say that very respectfully. But when, I, when I'm driving down the street, and this happens all the time in Melbourne, when somebody does not signal and their car comes in front of me, I get stressed out, and I don't like that. So my stress response fires, and I have to fight or, you know, it's fight or flight. And in my, that case, I'm fighting by putting my foot on the brake. Uh, that's a stressful feeling, and I don't like that feeling. And because I'm not used to that feeling, I do things to let those 
neurochemicals and those heated emotions dissipate. But for our young people, they are constantly, constantly experiencing an activation of their stress response. And for the families we're most concerned about, these families may have experienced, of children may have experienced these high levels of stress hormones in utero. So whether they families were experiencing violence while the child was in utero or um, in systemic or generational trauma, such as refugee or aboriginal communities. We know that some of our young people have perhaps never felt the steady state of um, the well-being response in their bodies, where their bodies are able to relax and breathe fully. Um, And so again, what can we do? We can acknowledge that the person in front of you may look calm, but their steady state is not necessarily your steady state. So we have to be very careful of making assumptions. You have talked about your research journey that you started. Um, In the process, you started a new methodology, which is the trauma-informed positive education model. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. So, it kind of it, this idea of uniting two fields. So, I guess we've been talking about trauma-informed practice and well-being-informed practice. Well, often those two research paradigms um, developed in silos in universities. So, you were either on the trauma side of the line or the well-being side of the line. And uh, there were those of us who started realizing that teachers needed both. That teachers. Some professionals were saying, oh, our kids are traumatized and we need to help them heal the stress response and help them, you know, build strong relationships. But I always got concerned when I was in those people's classrooms because I wasn't hearing enough about the students' strengths. And I wasn't hearing enough about how teachers were capitalizing on the great things that our young people were bringing with them. Because, you know, particularly Jaime, I know that the the kiddos that you work with and we work with, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of resilience to show up to school on time and to shake that teacher's hand and to say, I'm going to sit down now. I'm going to learn. Like those are strengths. So unless we brought an explicit strengths-based and well-being focus to our work, teachers, I actually don't think teachers were expansive enough to realize they could do both things in the classroom. And so we conceptually united the ideas of trauma-informed and positive education or positive psychologies um, interventions in the classroom. And we present that at Berry Street as a singular story that if we want to help young people meet their unmet needs, and these unmet needs are crisscrossing and very complex because of their own backgrounds, um, that teachers needed to be aware of all of this research. And it was all up to all of us as a community to figure out the best strategies to implement them in the classroom. Beautiful. Um, When we come back, I'm going to ask you about unconditional positive (laughs) regard. But before that, we're going to give our listeners another song. All that I can say. Interested in becoming an official radio presenter for 98.9 Northwest FM? Comprehensive training courses are frequently being conducted, so why not realize your dream and give it a go? Opportunities like this don't arise every day. You make them happen. 
For further details, contact Northwest FM on 9304 98.9 Northwest FM, your community radio station. Hi there, I'm Glenn Scarborough and I present the Northwest Amateur Footy Report every Sunday night from 6 for reviews of games of football in all the grades that the amateurs play in. The most comprehensive coverage of amateur football on Melbourne radio with previews, reviews and interviews with popular identities from clubs playing in all sections. So join us every Sunday at 6 for all your amateur football news on 98.9 Northwest FM, your local station. Your local station, the People Station of Hatfield. Uh, we just heard a track called All That I Can Say. Tom, tell us a little bit about that lady because I didn't know her. Mary J. Blige. Hi, May. God, I don't know about Mary J. Blige. A soul singer, an amazing, amazing force. Uh, direct, uh, direct cultural descendant from Aretha Franklin. Uh, but I love that song so much. It's beautiful. I really liked it. Thanks. So, um, back to trauma-informed practice. Yeah. Um, unconditional positive regard. A favorite philosophy theory and we're going to call it a strategy so unconditional positive regard arose from social work and therapeutic land uh humanistic psychologist carl rogers developed this theory in the late 60s that said if you're working with a struggling person you are not going to help but mirror the dysregulation that you see and you might have things thoughts that are not helpful because people are telling you stuff you don't want to hear and so he develops a concept called unconditional positive regard. And for teachers, we don't call it a theory, we call it a strategy because it can help us move into spaces with struggling students and struggling people to be in the headspace to help them. Um, and so w the steps we would, might say to develop unconditional positive regard are to separate the person from their behavior. So you might say, oh, this person has had a nightmare morning and this person is a little nightmare. But I'd like to prefer you to say, this person's had a nightmare morning and the behavior is very nightmarish. So you can see a subtle turn there. Uh, I also want you to consider that we must hold the ideal for the young person in our mind, that we are holding the potential for who they can be. And... Um, and we're holding a journey for them that it's not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to meet or exceed their potential this year, but they're on a lifelong journey of healing and learning. And our young people are very quick to be able to sense who is there for them and who's not. And they can sense who in their life is there to help them and who's there to control them. And so I think it's very important to move into spaces with this attitude that I'm, I'm somebody who's holding your potential. And then the last uh, thing I want teachers to know is um, we're helping people meet their unmet needs. And all of us have missed certain developmental markers because we are, none of us are perfect. And so when I think of a person in front of me who's struggling, they might struggle because they might not have had adult models in front of them who who taught them how to regulate their heated emotions. And so when I knock over the apple juice, my response is to have a you know, screaming attack around it. So uh, I think when it comes to helping, acknowledging that each one of us has 
past developmental milestones in our life or struggled to, it's a lot easier to do that with a five-year-old than it is a 17-year-old because when a 17-year-old is as tall as you are and they've stolen something from your bag, it's hard to say, wow, you may not have had a lot of models of emotional intelligence. (laughs) Uh, But it's important for all of us to remember that. Uh, So we'd like to say, finally, if you... um, If you can separate the person from their behavior, if you can hold the ideal for what they can become, and you can remember the developmental gates that they have missed or may need to pass through, then you can call them out with love in your voice. And I think there are young people who are looking for people with unconditional positive regard to help them and set limits and do the things they can do, but you can only say those things if you have credibility with them. So, Tom... My experience many, many years ago of some alternative schools mm-hmm. um, were, were, was of uh, places where young people were allowed to smoke dope. Mm-hmm. They were allowed to do nothing, getting two hours late. Um, so I just want you to tell me a little bit about boundaries. Oh. <laughs> I will just say this quickly, Jaime, that... Uh, That's why the work that we do is so, I think, collectively, the work we do is so important. And it depends on a community response because the kind of relationships our young people need, I'd like to think of perhaps around two polarities. And this comes from attachment theory that would say young people must have a safe haven. They must have people in their lives for them to come to and to vent and to help them organize their confusing feelings and all of that stuff. And then also young people must have a secure base that like think of a secure home base. And that has to do with limitations and boundaries and helping young people understand where they end and the world begins. And that if you cross certain boundaries in our community, then your life is going to be a lot harder than you wanted it to be. And so I, I guess I'd ask all of us, whether we're parents or carers or teachers or helpers, to be aware of that every relationship we have is trying to make sense on that continuum of safe haven and secure base, that we want to be there for young people, but we also want to show people uh, a way of living that helps them and will help them meet their own needs. So how we're coming to the end of the interview. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. I just want you to tell us a little bit about the changes that you have seen in Berry Street since you came to now. Yeah, uh, but what many changes? What do you well, mean by it, well, that? what I mean is, you know, the eight years ago they asked you to come. Would you help us with our education programs? Yeah. Okay. So what? Oh, okay, cool. Yes, yes. Um, One of the most exciting things at Berry Street is that our way of thinking and working is is helping many, many people around our country now. Um, And that was a surprise, but I think it speaks to the incredible need of communities to find new ways of meeting our, uh, helping our children. And so... I think it's great to talk about um, Broad Meadows and the community around Banksia Gardens. Um, that way of working through community, uh, Barry Street, we're supporting you, and we're also supporting communities like you across the country. So our team is working in the Northern Territory and in WA and far north Queensland and a whole bunch of places in between. And I think communities are saying we want to learn the science and strategies of trauma-informed practice. We also want to stay focused on being strength-based and what it means to build communities of well-being. Uh, 
And that's the most exciting thing to me because it means we're not just teachers in one silo and we're not just community workers in another. But I do think that there's a real appetite amongst a lot of us uh, to share our practice and really work together. So um, if people want to learn a little bit more about the training and what you have to offer. Oh, I thank you. Yeah. Uh. They can go, they can, we're easy to find. You can look up Berry Street Education Model and you can look up Berry Street Victoria. How many people do you have in your training team now? Oh, we just are about to hire some new people. But uh, I would say uh, check us out online if you're interested in seeing what kind of positions we have. But right now our team has about seven people in it. And also in our education programs, we have about 90 people working across the state together. Because you run a few schools as well. You said. We do. Four campuses. One in Shepparton, Morwell, Noble Park, and Ballarat. Wow. Um, Tom, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you a question. So, um, your family life, you, you have a partner. Yes. Who came uh, with you to the, from the US. Yes, yes. Um, just tell us a little bit about how you're finding life in Australia. We love it. Yeah? Well, okay, here's the, okay, I mean, my final moment with our listeners. So, Barry Street was very smart because when we came here for our first trip eight years ago, we they put us up in um, Fitzroy on, um, on um, Smith Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, my partner and I, who, we, my partner, uh, Patrick, he, he and I uh, lived in New York for almost 20 years before moving to Melbourne together. And so, we... We love New York in the 90s. And so when we were here eight years ago in Collingwood and Fitzroy, we we're like, oh, it's like it's like the East Village in the <laughs> 90s and independent businesses and artists and designers. And so we naively thought all of Melbourne was like that. So we thought, of course, we'll move here. <laughs> but uh, now we live in the northern suburbs and we belong there as middle-aged progressive professionals. <laughs> Beautiful. Tom, we really want to thank you so much for being with us today. I know how incredibly busy you are and just uh, giving away an hour of your time just to talk to us. I really appreciate Uh, it. Thank you, Jaime. Thanks, Carol. Thank you, Tom. And we're going to leave our listeners with your last selection. So do you care to say a couple of things about this song? Oh, I just think everyone needs to listen to The Cure in the morning. (laughs) Well, I think that's a great parting (laughs) thought. Uh, So we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, Carol.